myself blowing out smoke on the camera because it like goes through the pop filter a little bit Mm, the texture yeah you can hear it you can hear the smoke also i should mention i'm lighting up with an official hot box the cinema lighter we fill your mind up with ideas Mm -hmm. get yours today at the big cartel i always thought the name big cartel was really funny it's like the first time i saw it like 10 years ago i was like what why is that the name? Where's the small cartel? Like, mm-hmm. where's the little cartel? The, the big cartel implies the existence of a tiny cartel. <laughs> the big cartel. Uh, the big lots implies the existence of a little lots. That's a lot of lots you got there. Mm-hmm. Be a shame if uh, they got big. I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, how's it going? How are you doing? pretty good over here it's nice and uh it's nice and sunny outside it was like raining and crazy last mm. week very cold but today i'm chilling it's beautiful what about you yeah i guess we switched because last week it was pretty sunny this week it seems like there's gonna be some rain some drizzle some grayness and we've got yeah. that vibe right now personally i'm not fucking with it because you know it's humid it's like high 50s went outside earlier to get some zigzags and i had my big kind of puffier coat on because it was like a little bit chilly still and raining obviously so you know wanted the hood but just icky just gross literally my least favorite kind of weather yeah humid rain well it was like a little bit like that yesterday morning actually i went out for a run and then it started drizzling and i was like running in the rain so dramatic i guess this is actually a good point to transition into the the top of the box segment unboxing rip it open So I was running out there in the rain and I was like lately for some reason I've been wanting to watch the second Creed movie and then I was just running in the rain and I was like I gotta watch that watch Creed 2 as soon as I get home because that shit is me running in the rain that's that's a training montage yeah yeah for sure it's basically just like Rocky 4 where he's like has the cabin in the woods yeah and he's oh like yeah chopping up that wood and everything 
dragging the logs. Yeah. He got cutting back and forth between him and Ivan Drago <clears throat> in the like S and M laboratory with all the computers and all the Aryan people and the drugs. Yeah, just icy blonde women who have PhDs. And meanwhile, Rocky, he's keeping it real. The ghost of Carl Weathers watching over him. Mm-hmm. Just in the snow. Being followed by like, those KGB people. <laughs> and then at the end, I mean, Rocky warms up the Cold War and puts it to an end. All the Soviets are cheering, Rocky, Rocky, Rocky. Can't and believe that. They give up. They revoke communism. They literally fucking torch the communist manifesto because of Rocky. Mm-hmm. It's crazy how that happened. People also like to make a big deal about that movie, and it's like Cold War America versus the USSR, capitalism versus communism, but using Soviet montage. Yeah, that's my line. You got the Eisenstein intellectual montage snapping with that movie. But also, I mean, some good camp flavor, you know, uh, aging James Brown singing Living in America. The Robot Butler. Yeah. New Coke. But you didn't even watch that movie. You watched Creed 2. We're yeah. here over here talking but about Rocky 4. I think that it's worth talking about Rocky 4 when you talk about Creed 2, because this movie is also about, well, so the whole, you know, Creed 1 and 2, for those uninitiated who just didn't watch Rocky at a young age, and then just end up watching all the movies. Creed is a modern like spin-off series kind of or continuation of the rocky movies where rocky is training his old rival turned friends son played by michael b jordan named adonis creed uh which these movies came out before drake had his child and named it adonis there's there's a connection you know that drake does some of that shadow boxing alongside youtube videos shit (laughs) (laughs) damn but yeah, that first Creed, I mean, we both really liked that one a lot. And it's, yeah. uh, was, was it the second feature from Ryan Coogler after he made Fruitvale Station with Michael B. Jordan? Yeah, which was like, I don't know, it was very, I, I think, an interesting first kind of Hollywood feature. And also a movie that I was like going in, I wasn't sure if it was going to be like good or not. I liked Fruitvale Station, but mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a Rocky spinoff. I don't know. It, it has reasons to maybe like be a little skeptical but it's just like such a powerful piece of filmmaking i think like yeah. and well, also it, you mentioned you just you mentioned drake though and it felt like very emotional coming after not too long after the drake meek mill beef and i feel like at first people were all like pro drake and meek mill was on the outs and then of course everything kind of happened with like meek mill legally and i think people really and also people just decided to change course on Drake overall. And I, so I think their sort of situations reversed ultimately. And now people are like Meek more Meek Mill more than Drake, I think like mm-hmm. as a public figure, <laughs> but it just kind of like the way that, um, I don't know, like there's that training montage with, you know, it, it's uh, going to fly now instrumental orchestral version, which culminates in like slow motion dirt bikes, racing alongside creed in the streets of philadelphia uh shout out bruce springsteen Mm -hmm. my god uh and then like the meek mill verse comes in over it and i was just like crying because i was like wow it's feels like redemption yeah anyway that one 
love that movie. I was like, gotta yeah. watch the second one. And also that first one had that, uh, you know, it's a real sign of the times, but it had that future and Metro Boomin uh, kind of mm-hmm. flip of the Rocky theme song called Last Breath, which was, you know, I played it a lot at the time. Robbed of an Oscar, truly. They don't, t- it's snubbed from the Oscar snubs list, that one. That's mm-hmm. one of the great Oscar snubs of all time, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this movie, so since then, Ryan Coogler went on to make Black Panther, and I guess I don't know the other movies that he's worked on since then. That's it. That's it, pretty much. Black Panther 2 in the works, but gotcha. he's playing the game. Yep, he's getting the money. That's what it's all about. Yeah. But yeah, so this one is directed by Stephen Cable Jr., who his previous movie, I mean, he seems to be kind of charting a similar path to, to Ryan Coogler, because his first movie was another kind of like inner city, very internal character drama about, I think, young people living in Cleveland. It's called The Land, and then after that, he made Creed 2. But this one, I mean, at first I was watching it, and I was like, this is like kind of playing like an episode of TV, or more accurately, kind of like a shonen anime, where which is just like the stereotype, like power fantasy anime, where they, the guy keeps getting stronger and stronger, and that's it, you know? It did kind of make me, when you texted me that, and I was just kind of thinking about like, how much the Rocky movies feel a piece of with a lot of anime or with like martial arts and wuxia movies, just with like the focus on training and just endless <clears throat> training, endless leveling up. Yeah. And I explained this to a friend as I was watching it. I was just kind of texting about it. And I was like, this is basically just like a shonen anime. He's just like a sad boy boxer who just keeps getting like stronger. But then sometimes he loses. Like the first Rocky movie, he loses. The third one, he has to fight Mr. T. And the fifth one, he starts training this young guy named Tommy Gunn. It's very similar in structure, or I guess idea to Creed. Um, But he starts training some guy named Tommy Gunn. And, you know, this kid is just a punk and he breaks his heart or whatever. I don't know. I was also telling a friend about this and I was like, the Rocky movies are good, but you can skip some of them for sure. I know that uh, Rocky Balboa late period has its defenders with Milo Ventimiglia Mm -hmm. and in sort of the Mutt Williams to Indiana Jones type, like could have passed the torch of the franchise, but ultimately didn't. I haven't seen that since it was in the theater. I really could not tell you like one thing about it. But yeah, I mean, this one also kind of plays a little bit like a TV show because it feels like it picks up and you're just like getting updated on all the all the storylines from last time and everything. But I think it does keep like a little bit of like that visual precision that Ryan Coogler introduces in the first one where you have these great like training montages or not montages, but training like scenes in the gym. And it's like him like boxing into a mirror and then the camera moves like so close to the mirror that you can only mm-hmm. see the reflection. And then, I mean, it, it does a lot of like great. I mean, I feel like with something like Rocky, there's so much like iconography to the series, especially this spinoff series that's so tied up in this lore of like his opponent and turned friend from the first two movies who then dies at the beginning of the fourth one to this enemy that rocky has to go on and defeat i mean i feel like it it has to be so aware especially this one the reason i said this was so great to or this was like fitting that we talk about the fourth movie first so much Mm -hmm. is because uh this movie is not just about rocky training kind of a a type of sun figure uh, but the opponent that they're facing in like kind of the big battle of the movie is Ivan Drago, the enemy of the fourth one who Rocky defeats training up his son. And so it, you know, there's this whole backstory about how like no one in this country wanted him anymore. 
because he mm-hmm. lost this thing and he brought you know great shame to the soviet union and all this stuff on a world stage or whatever damn um so i mean it's very poor doll it's really aware of like the series iconography but then i mean even this movie kind of like has these like visual quotes for like you know images of muhammad ali who is like such uh you know in a time when television was like there um and kind of like the biggest like way Mm -hmm. people had to communicate themselves he was someone who before television and then during television was very like maybe not always like intentionally like putting on this presentation to be shown but he was one that like all these like mediums like tv and newspapers and and photography and stuff like that really magnetized toward um Mm -hmm. and so there are these images of him like training underwater at a pool that are just straight up muhammad ali photographs that everybody knows yeah yeah that show up in this it's also funny because there's like a lot of like mirroring of the fourth movie in this where like the training montage we're talking about earlier that aligns you know the soviet boxer with machines the american boxer with like pastoral labor and stuff (laughs) um this one though has like the pairing of like drago's son he's just like in a gym um i don't know just a cold empty gym Mm -hmm. just training and adonis creed goes to some like mad max in the desert like i think filmed in new mexico (laughs) type like just like barbed wire fence around this little training gym and he's like hammering the ground and there's this like song made by the composer of the movie with like a verse from asap rocky in it that's playing as like this whole training montage goes yeah isn't the music by uh childish gambino collaborator ludwig Goransson? or yep so that's that's the score but also this movie is kind of interesting to talk about especially with like ryan coogler's future projects after the first one with like black panther because it has a big companion rap album uh mm. a kind of i guess like the project was managed by mike will made it which uh black panther you know had that album i guess what headed up by kendrick lamar yeah with like mozzie and sobrbe on it which was like kind of wild for a disney movie and also uh the future slob on my knob yeah that's like that that song alone is just amazing i was really upset that song didn't play during like the big fight at the end of black panther that's just the fight from the end of star wars episode (laughs) one oh god i'm imagining now battle droids dancing to la di da di da slob on my knob (laughs) or like the you could have a you could make like a droid voice saying la di da di da (laughs) (laughs) pretty bad pretty bad anyway so it's just funny because i was thinking about like that first creed movie and that uh future mm-hmm. and metro Boomin song and some of like the other original music that was made for it and then since then the companion album has kind of like become like a bigger deal because like i mean there are a bunch of other yeah. companion album projects too like uh that end of the spider-verse movie had like a, a yeah. big radio hit by post malone and sway lee yeah, no, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, the Fred Hampton movie, had a companion movie, which was just, like, very ironic, some of the material on that album, like, ASAP Rocky just, like, bragging about being rich on an album inspired, allegedly, by a movie about a socialist, and apparently No Name was, they reached out to her about being on that soundtrack, and she said no, because she didn't really agree with the movie's depiction of Hampton. Um, yeah but also like yeah no it's such an industry yeah and you know black panther like i said earlier lion king of the beyonce album um and future did one for superfly with like oh right like a lot of collaborations with like party next door through the whole thing very vibes Mm -hmm. that movie really was was a vibe also the uh 
coming to America sequel recently. Like, I don't actually know how much music is in the movie because I haven't seen it, but it had a lot of like Afrobeat artists like Burna Boy on it mixed with American artists. Um, um, I will say the Mike Will album may be worth checking out because there are a couple, I don't know, a couple artists on there that are interesting or songs that are interesting. Like uh, in 2018, they made a song with Crime Mob, uh, you know, featuring Sway Lee, not Sway Lee, Slim Jimmy, the other the other half of Ray Shremard. And then knock if you buy. Yeah, the only other thing really noteworthy. So in these movies, Tessa Thompson plays Adonis Creed's like girlfriend, romantic interest, mm-hmm. and she basically she plays a musician who like struggles with like hearing loss. But her character is just kind of like modeled after like I don't know like bedroom R and B girls like FKA Twigs and and SZA a little bit so like that kind of strain of r&b but there's a song that she sings on this album there's one she sings in the movie but there's like a whole song made for this album featuring gunna 2018 different world yeah truly times have changed um you know it's interesting that you talk about like collaborations between this this movie about boxing professional fighting um and music because uh right now we're recording this in the middle of wrestlemania weekend um which is happening in in uh florida do you know what the what's the song of wrestlemania this year oh dude okay well last year it was um the weekend um blinding lights and this year it's another song off that same album uh like no more yeah. tears or whatever that song's called but that's like a sad song it's not a hype song and i don't understand really their collaboration with the weekend now over two years because it's just felt like a weird pivot from the kind of stuff they usually have done in the past couple of years like flow rider welcome to my house and like yeah or uh wale had that song pyt oh yeah right uh or like give me the green light because i'm ready to go uh you know just like all that that stuff just like very radio pop and like the weekend is that obviously you know he played the super bowl but it's just a very different tenor and this song is not hype at all and they're making a big deal about you know the wwe universe being welcomed back physically for the first time since the beginning of the pandemic and it made me a little bit nervous watching because you had a lot of people wearing masks but especially as the night got on you could see a lot of people masks off beer in their hands same thing as watching the super bowl not a good vibe but what is maybe two things of note. First of all, you had um headlining match for the SmackDown Women's Championship between um, Sasha Banks, Snoop Dogg's cousin, uh, actor on The Mandalorian, and noted anime fan, um, among other many accomplishments. Uh, and uh, she was up against Bianca Belair, who is from, coincidentally, Knoxville, Tennessee. Mm. Um, and that was the first time that two black women had been in the headlining match at WrestleMania. And it's a two-part, two-night event, but that's just, you know, it was a pretty incredible match, pretty emotional. You could tell that even though they were, you know, enemies, like, they both, like, you know, were, like, really emotionally invested in that match and just, like, very happy to be there. Um, so that was a great match. Also, pretty wild, Bad Bunny um, wrestling The Miz. And I guess Bad Bunny is, like, a noted longtime childhood WWE fan. And he sort of showed up at the Royal Rumble this year. And I think they really just kind of wanted it to be, like, a one-off thing. But he's been showing up consistently at WWE shows mm-hmm. for weeks and months now. Um 
collaborating with Damien Priest. Um, and The Miz uh, released a, like, parody reggaeton track and, like, came out with a bunch of people in bunny suits. And then Bad Bunny showed up, like, on top of a semi-truck. And I, you know, I was kind of unsure, you know, like Bad Bunny seemed pretty into it, seemed pretty serious and committed. But obviously WWE does these kind of celeb cameo novelty matches all the time. And a lot of times they're, you know, just pretty quick stunts. But it was like a long, arduous match. And like Bad Bunny, like really trained and like is a fucking real ass wrestler. And it's just kind of wild thinking about like pop star persona crossing over with wrestling persona and i mean yeah. spoilers but he holds a wwe title now so he is seemingly coming back what like, i thought about watching this last night and i didn't and clearly that was the wrong choice i was you know even though the match was like he was really given it as all physically i still kind of expected him to lose because you know that would be like it and he'd be written out of the storyline maybe come back in a few years or something but no he's in it and uh he's got an incredible drip you know like he's yeah. got the just the bulletproof like overalls or some shit um and like it's it really works and uh and much better than logan paul who's showing up tonight do you think chet hanks is going to be there watching him it seems like those two are like friends or something they seem like they would probably run in similar circles of like la white dude yeah they've got i've got some similar vibes I was, you know, there was a period of time where, like, Riff Raff was training with Hulk Hogan and was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to, like, wrestle, and that didn't seem to pan out. I feel like if you're, like, somebody from something else coming into wrestling, the other thing has to be a real draw. I feel like wrestling is not going to be the thing that wins everybody over, and Riff Raff did not, did not have the longevity, I don't think. No, he, you know, he's he just dropped an album with Yellow Wolf, and, and he's working with DJ Paul all the time, but he's just... He's just there. He just kind of exists to show up on your Spotify release radar because you listened to him years ago and you will be reminded about him in perpetuity. But real quick pivot, because it's just another thing on this tangent of like music and fighting. Um, gotta, of course, give big ups. Rest mm -hmm. in peace to DMX. I ain't going back to jail. Next time the county of the state see me, it's going to be in the back. back. Darkman X, the legend who at one time was going to beat the shit out of George Zimmerman in a pay-per-view boxing match. And he was like, I don't care about the contract. I'm just going to like destroy Zimmerman. And so it was canceled um, and didn't end up happening. Uh, but such a fucking original voice literally and figuratively in, in rap music and i don't know it's been kind of interesting just like seeing people talk about him online because there's been a lot of like very genuine enthusiasm and a lot of people just like sharing like random positive wholesome things he did over the years you know in contrast to some of the like darker elements of his persona and stuff and uh but also at the same time like there has been some kind of i feel like some weirdness in how some people talk about him like i've seen some people being like people are trying to cancel dmx oh. for being homophobic and like having problematic bars and i'm like i guess some people are probably complaining about that but i don't think it's some like concerted cancel culture effort and i think it's kind of stupid and kind of imaginary that like i think i've seen mostly genuine appreciation for him and recognition of like uh i don't know a pretty singular place in hip-hop you know somebody who is like a really i mean a mainstream star but also pretty hardcore and 
in a continuum with a kind of raw New York sound, but also like dabbled sort of in horror core and goth and like worked with Marilyn Manson and, uh, you know, just, you know, obviously the like flesh of my flesh, blood of my blood cover, you know, all of that. Or even it's dark and hell is hot. I feel like that cover still goes into it. I was like just re-listening to that and there's, you know, a, a song that like flips the Freddy Krueger like one, two, Freddy's mm-hmm. coming for you rhyme. There's a song about like Damien from The Omen um, that, that also references yeah. Chucky. And so it's like much, I feel like much more kind of in that very turn of the millennium like horror core wave than a lot of new york rappers went Mm -hmm. but also i feel like people talk so much about where he came from and his upbringing and everything and how he would like avoid abusive family members by like going and just like befriending dogs in in the street and stuff i feel like that is something that even though i mean that's true and that's like where he, he came from and like how he was raised that's also like i feel like something that like plays into this like darker horror core element that that people maybe like spice up a little bit yeah definitely and like i don't know i've seen some people like it's kind of made me feel a little bit icky i've seen some like white people who are like later millennials gen x and were like young teens at the time that his music was coming out and like obviously being of that age in that time like i think you're like relationship to hip hop would be pretty different than like us you know being younger millennials where like hip hop and rap were just kind of much more like ingrained in the culture and not this like still kind of a little bit of a novelty at least to white people Mm -hmm. um, in terms of like mainstream popularity and I've just seen people kind of expressing like oh like I love DMX you know like my parents were so scared of him like and listening to him was this kind of rebellion for me and I mean I think definitely maybe like at certain times getting into rap like coming up growing up in a very conservative religious family like it it, maybe it sometimes expressed that kind of outlet for me but It's just, I don't know, it feels a little bit weird to see it kind of held up in that way. Um, And it feels directly related to uh, one of DMX's movies that I finally watched, um, which, you know, obviously he was in great movies like like Hypoleme's Belly, um, had a long kind of like direct-to-video career, you know, action movies like Cradle to the Grave and and Exit Wounds. And, um, but I had been wanting to see for a long time Ernest Dickerson, obviously Spike Lee cinematographer. We've talked about surviving the game before um, on our Battle Royale episodes, and I'm also a huge fan of bones and and demon knight and and just his work in general so i watched his sort of like crime noir thriller never die alone which stars dmx and is based off of a novel by donald goines um who if you're not familiar with his work really fascinating guy who um he was addicted to heroin and you know did anything and everything to fund that addiction um ended up in prison discovered the works of iceberg slim uh, infamous pimp turned novelist and was really impressed upon by him. And so he started writing and, and would, instead of, uh, you know, doing crimes to, to, to fund his habit, he started just churning out these like really intensely gritty, raw, brutal, uh, crime novels based off people he knew based off things he'd done. 
he died you know he was killed in his apartment um and you know lived what he wrote about and was of course like very influential to a lot of like rappers like tupac and and Nas, um you know who were kind of influenced by that style of storytelling and just that sort of just direct address almost um and so this is an adaptation of one of his novels and it's like set you know in the 2000s when it was made but it adds this like frame story like dmx is actually not so much the main character as is david arquette who plays this like wannabe Ernest hemingway type who's like trying to get a job as a newspaper reporter he lives in like a uh, uptown Harlem apartment, like the only white guy on his block, the only white guy at the bar he goes to regularly, has a Miles Davis and a Wu-Tang poster on his wall. And at the beginning of the movie, actually DMX is dead and is like narrating it from like postmortem, which is a very like Sunset Boulevard, like noir kind of touch. And there's a lot of DMX voiceover. Uh, because he's constantly talking to himself into a tape recorder, like Dale Cooper, like mixed with Iceberg Slim, mixed with Kenny Powers a little bit. So in the beginning of the movie, DMX like gets stabbed and David Arquette like finds him and like takes him to the hospital. And in his dying moments, DMX like wills over all of his money and car and belongings to this you know guy he just met on the street um, and so David Arquette takes this like ridiculous outsized pimped out like Cadillac that he just does not fit in. And he finds these cassette tapes in it, which are all these tapes of DMX, like telling his life stories, basically writing his memoir. And the movie is a very like most of it, like the sort of contemporary present narrative is like very dark um, shot by Matthew Libatik and very much kind of predicts like what Tony Scott was about to do in movies like Domino and Deja Vu. But all of the like flashbacks of DMX, like that are that David Arquette is listening to and then transcribes and tries to write and sell as a story himself. All of those are these like candy colored hype Williams flashbacks. And there's literally one point where David Arquette's black girlfriend tells him like, you're like, this isn't a rap video or a Tarantino movie. And like those flashbacks feel like a riff on both rap videos and Tarantino movies. And so David Arquette is like living vicariously through DMX. And at first it's this, these like very poppy fantasies but increasingly it becomes really bleak and really brutal and violent and like traumatizing and dmx dmx's character is doing these just like absolutely horrific like things and david arquette is still kind of like in his own way getting off on it a little bit and then at the end of the movie instead of having never die alone written by or donald goins never die alone is written by like whatever the name of david arquette's character is and like his black publisher is like laughs at him and he's like you know this is a great piece of writing but like you made this up like this isn't real like what the fuck like and he's like no 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 like you know it's real it's all real and and nobody believes him and so it's just this kind of like fascinating comment on like the relationship of of white hip-hop fans to this kind of art that is oftentimes like very unsparing and and brutal and about an experience that me and you know uh, other people like me have real no ex no, no real experience of and so it's just had me kind of thinking about that and like how a, a lot of times well i i don't know i think the kind of people i've seen sort of express those sentiments of like dmx was this like thing that scared my parents are people who like i don't really think 
consistently listen to rap anymore and like it was just sort of a teenage phase for them and it's just sort of fascinating to me that like dmx is was in a movie that is like very directly about this issue of perception and sort of spectatorship in in rap and i don't know i i um i've just been thinking a lot about his screen presence too and like a really fascinating kind of mm-hmm. career in that regard um he did a i found out he did a dtv movie with chris christopherson called like jump out boys that was written and produced by kane and abel of masterpiece no limit records uh who also like wrote a series of crime novels like uh around the two early 2000s like when wow. no Limit was popping off and just sort of the connection between like you know no limit films which was i think really sort of like why the sort of wave of rap movies around the turn of the millennium really popped off like it did was because uh, Master P really proved that it was like this uh, both a revenue stream but also a source of expression for uh, artists who basically were like crime novelists like I don't know when you think about like 90s rap like that's really what it is is it's kind of hard-boiled yeah pulp fiction but also DMX was like an artist who especially like during that time of very like aggressive rap music and very like hyper masculine popular rap mm-hmm. music and aggression I mean those like songs that you know i mean as you say are a type of like crime fiction or like being like spoken in front of like the supreme court and stuff you yeah. know like those like dmx's lyrics were literally read in front of the supreme court at a time when they were like basically trying to determine like can i arrest a rapper because of lyrics that they wrote yeah i was actually reading about this recently because i've gotten obsessed with this uh, rap reaction channel by this guy named King Guap and he puts out videos constantly so most of them are not very good like he's just like this track's fine whatever but he's just genuinely like this like pretty young guy like 20 who's just like I didn't grow up in the 90s I don't know this classic rap just like recommend me songs and uh, I'll you know check them out but like you know don't clown on me for being a young guy who, do- who doesn't know this stuff like I'm just trying to educate myself um and obviously just given the nature of like hip-hop heads he's mostly being made to listen to like a certain kind of like like a lot of nas and like i've watched a, like a big pun video of his where he was like stop giving me nas songs like i'm i i love nas i'll do nas again someday but like i gotta do somebody else besides nas <laughs> and i was watching a tupac song and i i had god i should have looked this up but i think it was like see legit or or somebody else who who shows up a lot on on Tupac songs who was like the first rapper convicted based on his lyrics um, which has obviously been an issue for decades and is constantly something that is under litigation but yeah I think that like there is constantly that line of like you know rap often is kind of used as a sort of documentary form of of direct narrative but it's also very often fictional and black artists are just not given that same license to create fiction yeah well so i bring this up to say that you mentioned like acting being like another mode of expression for Mm -hmm. rappers who like weren't i mean usually weren't even like given the license to do that in their music Mm -hmm. which i feel like if you know if we're talking about like white spectatorship in rap music often like the way that plays out is like white people who didn't grow up with these experiences who were just in a way like thinking that they're doing surveillance Mm -hmm. by like listening in on this like thing that has to be true and just going yeah that's so crazy i'm in the know now i mean in the same way that like 
you know, white people who watch The Wire or something like that. There's like the stereotype of like, it's like, yeah, I, I know what it's like out there, you know? Yeah, no, definitely. Like, <clears throat> and I think that even like, you know, The Wire is like based, you know, David Simon's reporting, but it's still like a crime procedural. And so there are these moments like, you know, I think that like the, the like season four with the kids is like great in a lot of ways and a lot of the show's best. But I also think at the same time, it's like, it's, it's like, it, it's like, oh, we have to be real. We have to be true and like subject these people to horrible, horrible things because like that's the way it is. And it's like, no, this is still like a fictional melodrama. Like, you know, I think you could like be kind to someone, one of these kids at least, like give them some kind of like out or like positive. I don't know. It just feels like it doesn't acknowledge like how sort of excessive it is sometimes. And like, and it uses that sort of like, nonfiction as an excuse to like <laughs> perpetrate trauma against its characters a little bit i don't know yeah and also i feel like the wire people like take as like again a kind of like nonfiction thing because mm -hmm. david simon used to be a journalist in baltimore and like wrote that book homicide life on the streets and made the hbo show out of that and that's how he got on to make mm -hmm. the wire eventually but also like david simon some guy who like i remember like five years ago he was like making a big deal about how he as a white guy like couldn't say the n-word or something yeah no i mean he gets in arguments with like dsa members on twitter all the time uh and stuff and uh and i mean i guess season five of the wire is even kind of about that just like it's it's i don't think it's a very good it's like the one season i actually don't really like but um, oh, season five it is kind like of a serial killer thing yeah it is kind of like about that issue of like you know reporting and fictionalization and and stuff like that um Anyways, oh, damn, we've been on some tangents. I don't even know. Yeah, let's just close up the damn box. Yeah, lock it up. Mm -hmm. But I mean, honestly, rappers in movies is kind of a good segue to what we're going to talk about. Because there are two rappers uh, in the movie. Monster Hunter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Directed a by great Paul one. Thomas Anderson. Damn, I really <laughs> fucked that up. I said the wrong Wes one. Wes Anderson. Yeah, directed by Wes Anderson. I mean... Paul Wes Anderson. Yeah. What's what's in between the W and the S? But, you know, he did have to change his name. On his first few movies, he was credited as Paul Anderson. And then I think it was around... It might have been Resident Evil. That was first his first movie as Paul W.S. Anderson because Paul, w, Paul Thomas Anderson got too big. Mm -hmm. And, of course, for those in the know, for those who've been on the film internet for a while... You will remember that a pivotal moment in in critical discourse was when the master and Resident Evil Retribution came out on the same day in September 2012. And I think Armand White and a few other a few other people wrote about that and were like, everybody takes the master seriously. Why doesn't anybody take Resident Evil Retribution seriously? Yeah. And that is really where a lot of the like sort of online love and cinephile reappraisal of Paul W.S. Anderson, which I am a big proponent of uh, myself. That's where a lot of that kind of actually stems from. Just a little history. Gotcha. I actually didn't know that when I was in high school, I was like, I was watching Paul Thomas Anderson movies as a high schooler does, you know, same. I wasn't watching Paul W.S. Anderson. I was like, I remember going to the movies and being like, what the fuck is this shit? Or like hanging out with some friends, like shooting airsoft guns. And like we went in his, like my buddy's room and just like one of the movies was like on casually. And I was just like, this looks so stupid. I have yeah. better taste than this. And then I learned the error of my ways. Yeah. And I feel like Resident Evil also gets lumped in with a lot of that 
type of like uh, turn of the millennium action, especially the turn of the millennium video game adaptations. You had like, mm-hmm. you know, the first Hitman adaptation. There's a Far Cry movie. There was Blood Drain. You know, yeah. the Lara Croft movies that I guess we talked about on this before. But I feel like these kind of get lumped in with them. And in the same way with Fast and Furious, there's a lot of people who just, like, don't take them seriously and then, like, don't realize there's so many of them because they're very popular. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. And, and I think also Resident Evil got lumped in with, like, another Screen Gems property, uh, Underworld, with Kate Beckinsale, which is a similar sort of, like, husband and wife collaboration because... Mila Jovovich and Paul W. Sanderson got together after working on the Resident Evil movies. And I think believe that Kate Beckinsale and Michael Sheen were together during Underworld. And then she started uh, hooking up with the director of Underworld, who is, oh, fuck, what's his name? Lynn Wiseman, who would also direct the remake of Total Recall. Yeah. Then they got together. Now they're together and been a couple for a long time. But um I remember, just remember, like, I had the Resident Evil DVDs in my suitcase once when I was, like, getting on an airplane. And they were, like, going through my suitcase. And the guy, the TSA guy, was like, oh, Resident Evil. I didn't know anybody actually liked these movies. You know, I guess it's, you know, they're a video game, right? Like, I guess it must have, that must be it. You know, I never played the games. You know, I'm not much of a gamer. But I tell you what, I like those. I, I did like those Underworld movies. I thought those were pretty good. Yeah. I've only seen the first one. It's got some cool touches, like Kate Beckinsale, like, shooting doing target practice with roman busts but yeah uh, i mean resident evil is better it was like uh it was some like background like tv stuff at like a bar i was at one time that's a vibe yeah and also another mila jovovich movie ultraviolet um i think it's kind of of this wave uh aeon flux however you say it yeah aeon i've seen that movie i don't even know how to say it i don't know i don't remember that movie very much yeah i've only seen ultraviolet and that it's uh that movie is rendered yeah it looks like it's made an iMovie yeah like it's just got some they spent not a lot of time on that movie but I kind of respect it you yeah know, it's a little bit of like a sky captain in the world of tomorrow vibe oh yeah for sure I mean it's fun for sure there's like they spent the money where it would get the most done which is you know colors and costume mm-hmm. design but like kind of budgety costume design but there's I mean there's some images in that movie it's something to have on <laughs> uh resident evil though people kind of criticize for a lot of the same reason people do with the monster hunter movie just because they anytime you adapt a video game into a movie people are just gonna like point out the ways that it's not like the interactive game right this is usually like how this works i mean given that filmmakers whenever they pick up a video game sometimes like you know you uve bowl is like one of those filmmakers who's associated with a lot of those early video game movies that I mentioned who like people talk about in this really joking way. I don't know. I'm not trying to defend every video game movie ever, but in the same way that like fans criticize it for not being like a video game, I feel like often the way that a video game gets adapted into a movie is like taking kind of a normal story or a, like a film genre story that the game genre is kind of inspired by changing names and stuff like that. And then like throwing in Easter eggs for like features in the game or even like acknowledging moments of like player interaction or mm-hmm. something like that. I mean, these kind of movies get set upon and marginalized on two fronts, both by like serious critics who are like, oh, this is adapted from a game. I don't like games. It must be trash. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Like like Roger Ebert in the Pokemon movie. Yeah. You know, and then the other side of it is like 
the gamers who are fucking nerds with a stick up their butt and take everything too seriously and um, don't appreciate things on their own merits. And, you know, these are the people who were set set against the Resident Evil movies from the jump because allegedly uh, George Romero, like, wrote a script for, for Resident Evil and everybody was pissed that he didn't get to make it, which is just like, I don't know. I Yeah, I don't think, I don't know, that circling back to the origins of sort of zombie cinema, like as much as I love Romero and think he's a great filmmaker, I think that Anderson does something that's much more interesting because he's a gamer. Um, yeah. And you see games appearing in his movies from the jump, from his debut shopping. And then, I mean, obviously he made Mortal Kombat after that. And yeah. he is just like much more aware of the textures and structures and mechanics of gameplay than I think George Romero would have been. Yeah. And people get really up in arms also about the Resident Evil movies because they don't like they're different than the game story. And for some reason, this might make some listeners mad. People are just so holy and sacred about the Resident Evil like series, like story. Yeah. Where to me, it's just, I don't know, like it's very like kind of heavy conspiracy, turn of the millennium, like corporate infection type thing. But it's like, mm-hmm. I don't know that it's anything special. It feels like a pastiche in the same way that the uh, around the same time, like Metal Gear Solid was also a pastiche. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where it's like uh, I still haven't seen Joker, but when everyone got mad about Joker sort of rip ripping on uh, Chantal riffing Ackerman, on, riffing on or ripping off. Yeah. <laughs> news from home. Yeah. Uh, or like, you know, Scorsese and stuff. I was just kind of like, well, I don't know. It's it's adapted from comics and comics are always sort of very blatantly ripping off other mediums or like doing a kind of like i mean from you know i don't know like the punisher is basically a ripoff of the pulp character the executioner but also you know i don't know from the 80s on i feel like there's a lot of like simpsons like kind of parodies in comics like i mean even in a recent marvel thing like wandavision with like sitcom parodies it sort of has that tenor so i don't really mind a comic book movie that's sort of based in pastiche in the same way with with games and with game movies and people are always kind of like oh well the resident evil movies are like you know obviously ripping off like mad max or obviously ripping off alien or or john carpenter movies or this or that and every single entry in the series has a sort of different flavor and tenor to it and what kind of action it's trying to be or like what kind of horror it's going for but I just like that because that is sort of how games are and just they're sort of blatantly just taking tropes from cinema. And so to have it sort of translated through all these various layers of adaptation is very interesting to me. And yeah. it works for me both sort of like the idea of zombies as, I don't know, this sort of virus and sort of thing that spreads and mutates like genre does. I think that the whole series is about cloning because, I mean, the main character, Alice, played by Mila, we never know her original. We only know copies of her. And the whole series is kind of her reckoning with, like, copies of copies and finding out that she's a copy and yeah. all of these things. And, I mean, then at the end we find the final chapter, we find out the real story and the kind of origin of it and the real copy for the real original of Alice, the model for her, like is old and dying and her memories are like fused into the body of the clone younger Mila. So then like this authentic version emerges, but that's just like such a fascinating reflection on identity to me. And so it works with this sort of like having this sort of shifting disposable genre because it's like 
all of the characters are kind of disposable. They're all clones. They're all just like versions of themselves. You never know where reality is. It's just all of these layers of like corporate simulation. Yeah. Um, But I mean, I feel like that, that to me is something that I think is very well adapted from like the original games. Cause like the story in those games is like, I mean, I said it's kind of pastiche, but a lot of it feels more like scenario to me that goes mm-hmm. around like tense gameplay that you could have all the story apply or you could not. And it just be like a like a haunted house thing in the first Resident Evil game. The characters feel like very loose kind of like archetypes and you're just like spending a lot of time with them and you can change it. a lot of like these games. Also, uh, there's like this loop of like unlocking costumes getting to replay with a new costume getting to replay with a new gun and it's very aesthetic Mm -hmm. it's very kind of like change out customize your experience i've really only played resident the resident evil 2 remake but you know that has just like you know two story like two slightly different storylines based on which character you choose yeah um and it's generally considered you know like you should play kind of both versions yeah uh, to get the like full experience i guess but also like i don't understand the criticism we're just going off of a resident evil now um it's related it is it feeds into what he does with monster hunter i think definitely but i mean well also in terms of like people just being outraged by the whole thing but also people like don't ever question they're like oh well this is just you know kind of like curbing the whole resident evil thing it's not really respecting it but like the first resident evil is something that is so indebted to like older like horror movies and stuff like Mm -hmm. the first game no matter which version you play the remake or the original it's all fixed camera angles slowly opening doors to get into the next room sometimes you get in a room and you don't see your character you see something else or you see your character and no zombies but you hear a zombie so it's, you know, kind of the forced perspective that at the time was just a product kind of of technical limitations, but also is, is kind of this interesting way of using the environment to, to create interesting sensations and, and kind of intended sensations, which yeah. I think that's something that I see mostly in the Resident Evil movies, which are very architectural, are very much about, you know, just people like moving through spaces and stuff. Mm -hmm. i feel like this is just like really generic boring kind of stupid like action stuff but those movies like (laughs) at their most interesting to me are about like people interacting with the environment and sometimes the environment like interacting back yeah no i mean i think you know my favorite of the series is is the fifth one retribution uh which is literally mostly set in this like underground umbrella facility where they have all of these different simulated environments to see what it would look like to unleash the t-virus on different places so they have like suburban america they have like moscow tokyo london i think so it's just all of these like very deliberate simulations of places and there's never really any real and the this movie is like you know like alice finds like all of these clones of herself but also there is like a clone of her in the suburbia simulation and that clone had a daughter and the daughter survives and like sees the clone the other version of alice and gets attached to her and she's like doesn't know who this child is and then the child eventually sees all the clones and stuff and it's just like all of these kind of mindfuck layers of like simulated identity which is then reflected in the environment so i guess to you know to start kind of leading into monster hunter i think that 
the landscape of Monster Hunter and the environment that it's set in is is very similar and that it's just this like blank desert. You know, I like I think that it was shot in South Africa. Um and mm-hmm. it's this like UN uh you know platoon or like whatever and but it's never really specified like where it is or why they're there yeah. or what people are there. It's just a blank environment. Yeah, one thing that we'll probably get into later is that it starts off with kind of this frame of the the military unit that Mia Mia serves in. And there's like never any opposing force. There's never yeah. even any like people who live there. Like the military is just there for like no apparent reason. Like the story doesn't even try to justify it. They're just there. Yeah, this squad is there to like investigate another squad who went missing, but we don't know why that other squad that went missing was there in the first place. Like we just know they went missing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, and and so it has the sort of like military war movie action movie frame you know it's very much about like the grunts the infantry you know they're singing like it's a platoon movie yeah totally you know they're singing they tell me in the army and you know like that marching song about just like how shitty it is to be in the army yeah so these are just real kind of like like video game characters often are just real disposable red shirt (laughs) grunts you know whatever term you want to use and they are mostly disposed of pretty quickly and i think you know from the kind of trailers promotional material whatever you had again these sort of two lines of of marginalization and critique one from gamers being like oh this isn't in line with the aesthetic of the monster hunter movies you know this military drab what aesthetic whatever and then you had other people who were being like oh this is like imperialist propaganda but the answer to both of those questions is literally just look back at the games and you'll see it because if we're talking about colonialist propaganda the movie's not the thing that started that with monster hunter (laughs) yeah yeah go off you know and then uh, also the the whole pastiche of like the machine guns against the monster was literally inspired by a collaboration between a monster hunter psp game and the metal gear solid peace walker psp game mm-hmm. speaking of pastiches i guess yeah no and i think that i don't know you know, people are very much like oh metal gear solid kojima tourism you know it's so thoughtful and political and whatever yeah and, and I think I, you know, it's obviously Monster Hunter is is not like a really political movie, but the the army gets its ass kicked like fairly quickly. You know, it's just totally disposable and like there to be destroyed, and yeah. it's not it's not celebrating it because pretty much every army man, except for Mila, like dies really quickly. You know, Ti like. Yeah, gets all these spiders coming out of him, and it's really nasty and shit. Uh, you might say that Ti died expeditiously. <laughs> Good God, Whew. dead and gone. Oh, that's pretty good. But yeah, I mean, all the military, like the people in the platoon, like instantly just get like picked off one by one. Where it's only like Mia and then Tony Cha. It's like a United Nations envoy or something. And fittingly, the movie is this big international co-production um, between Screen Gems and Sony Pictures, which is all uh, obviously already kind of a multinational hybrid company corporation, uh, but working with Constantine Film from Germany, who uh, I believe were producers on the Resident Evil movies as well. And then China's Tencent Pictures, uh, which is obviously a branch of, of the Tencent 
Gaming Corporation, mm-hmm. um, which should I disclose that I own one single share of Tencent stock? <laughs> Conflict of interest. I had a stake yeah. in the financial success of Monster Hunter. Uh, <laughs> no, actually, I didn't own a Tencent stock at that time because I bought stock because of the fucking bullshit meme stuff which was a psyop to convince me to buy stock and then i was like well this is stupid like and all of these are losing money but let me just keep my money here and buy a bunch of like tiny like one dollar of a bunch of different companies but i bought a, a share of tencent um so and, and then also uh toho from japan is the other big monster corporate monster involved in this movie obviously you know just a legendary distributor of like every fucking japanese filmmaker you can think of yeah but mostly probably known in the united states for godzilla and the that's, monster that's what kaiju the movies most. yeah yeah so they transfer to another another type of monster altogether exactly the conglomerate monster yeah, I mean, do you have any initial thoughts about the movie compared to, like, Paul W.S. Anderson's other work? Because I feel like I'm less familiar. Like, I watched the Resident Evil movies, but mm-hmm. distant past. Yeah, I am uh, really studied, I guess, in Paul W. Sanderson. Uh, I mean, I, I love his work, but I also, like, I'm several years ago when I was uh, part of the video essay industrial complex for the streaming service Fandor. Jared Leto's Fandor. Yeah. Oh, God. I was a part of the cult. Uh, I didn't even know it. But I made this, like, very meticulous video essay about the formal kind of style and tics of Paul W.S. Anderson and just literally went through every single one of his movies frame by frame. So I've, like, seen even his, like, TV movie The Sight, which is, like, an Alice in Wonderland-inspired detective pilot that didn't get picked up yeah i know he loves it he loves that shit he loves to go down the rabbit hole yeah see how far it goes i i really liked monster hunter um just in context of his movies i'll say um i think there's a lot you can see a lot here just i mean the sort of landscape the desert recalls like resident evil extinction which he only wrote and produced he didn't direct it was directed by the god music video king russell mulcahy but it just has that sort of like i don't know a lot of the sort of like attempt to really replicate like the mechanics of video games um the itemness the objectness the sort of emphasis on weapons is very much a piece with resident evil and feels very authentic to games in a way that a lot of game adaptations don't mm-hmm the monster hunter world, the alternate parallel world is desert, but is also this sort of tropical, like, I don't know, swashbuckling, like action adventure, pirate kind of landscape. And it so it has a little bit of the Mortal Kombat feel. And, you know, people are always like, oh, he's ripping off just like these big action sci-fi movies that everybody knows. But like when you read interviews with Paul W.S. Anderson, he mostly is citing stuff like, I don't know, just like older decades of genre and 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 sort of tentpole cinema like he said he wanted mortal Kombat to sort of be like the ray harryhausen jason and the argonauts mixed with enter the dragon and one of his big sort of influences that he cited for monster hunter is uh john borman's hell in the pacific um with uh lee marvin and toshira mifune which is like you know mila and tony ja this sort of cross-national cross-language like buddy action movie um about these two people who are sort of forced together and they try to fight at first and then they start to develop this grudging respect for each other and eventually help each other out i just think this takes it to a whole nother level i 
you know, honestly, I, I, you know, I like John Borman some, I really love point blank, but I found hell in the Pacific to be a, just a little bit flat. And I don't know, this just, there's just such incredible physical chemistry between Mila and Tony, I think. And, and I don't know, just a continuing facet of his movies, even outside of the Resident Evil movies, you know, Three Musketeers as well. It's just Paul W. Sanderson being one of cinema's ultimate wife guys. And just you, you feel like he just wants to watch his wife do cool shit. And um, that's a lot of Monster Hunter, honestly. Like a lot of the Resident Evil movies, it's just like Mila, like just doing crazy stunts and getting crazy looking weapons and them just having a good time. Yeah. And it's also just like, most of the movie is just action. One thing I didn't talk about in the opening of the show, just because we went long, was that I watched Conan the Barbarian. And watching that kind of reminded me of different ways that Monster Hunter is so much just about poetry or like mm-hmm. rhythm of just like action happening in space. And then, I mean, this movie takes like so much effort to like really get you familiar with the area and it like introduces new obstacles the same way that video games introduce like pois which are also known as like Mm -hmm. points of interest which is like just a big kind of set piece in the landscape with really good defining features that maybe influence combat one way or influence traversal or something so it's like one of those things where in a video game they show you this hill you have to go to or something like that and you know a camera will zoom on this ramp that allows you to get up there really easily and just like Mm-hmm. basically tells you what to do on this landscape and yeah like so much of that language is just pulled directly into this movie yeah i mean it has that sort of like open world illusion where it's like you see this infinite landscape going on forever and ever which is just seemingly empty and like there for you to play in but it's obviously like a narrative that's meant to go in one direction and you're only really going to see one part of the landscape sort of rendered for you mm-hmm I think that is one distinction between the Resident Evil movies and this is that Resident the Resident Evil movies do feel sort of, of like an older generation of games that are much more like limited, closed, constrained environments, hallways, tunnels, um, which Paul W. Sanderson's movies are like all defined and obsessed with kind of, with tunnels and um there's a great piece on him um by rob sweeney for the la review of books uh that came out a couple months ago when monster hunter hit video and it sort of connects that constant fascination with tunnels to like anderson coming from a mining family uh which i think is pretty interesting and like i don't know you definitely feel that sort of like industrial sort of uh, feel in like his first movie shopping, which is just about, which is a sort of train spotting ish kind of like nineties British rave crime movie about people who, who uh, smash windows of stores for fun. Uh, also Jude Law's debut. I feel like he has that sort of just like, there's kind of a working class kind of streak to his movies. Just sort of, I feel like in an unpretentiousness you might call termite art, which, you know, fittingly termites make might tunnels. That is, that is. I didn't uh, know that term. White elephant versus termite art. Uh, Got to give it out to the give it up to the man, Manny Farber. Mm-hmm. Great, great essay. Yeah, I think it's kind of funny though to talk about tunnels, and then we're also talking about the open world nature of Monster Hunter because in games, mm-hmm. tunnels, at least up until open world games became more popular, tunnels were essentially load bearing sections of a game that would like rid the console memory of like the last area you were in 
and then render the mm-hmm. area that you're walking into. And it's just this tight way to keep you moving and make you think that you're still playing the full game when it's mm-hmm. a way that they're using to create the next kind of stage. And it's, I mean, it's a type of loading screen. And I think that's one thing that I think people who don't really like Anderson's movies, that's what they don't like, is that it does often have this sort of very simulated feeling where it feels like there's not a world beyond the screen at all. It just feels like what exists is what has been rendered in front of you and what the machine is able of generating right now. And there is no world beyond that. And it's so it has this kind of hollowness and uncanniness for this reason. But I, I honestly like that sort of texture. Yeah. And Monster Hunter does have some of that, but again, it feels more for this like current version of like real big budget AAA gaming, um, mm-hmm. where you have just like the sky going on forever and and yeah. all of this kind of like you know mountains and no tunnels. But I mean, those games still like use different kind of like tricks to not render the full game environment. Mm-hmm. They like get rid of the area you just left, put in the area you're kind of walking toward. And it's just kind of you're in like a roaming circle that keeps rendering and de-rendering as it passes over that area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's also kind of worth mentioning that like the first Monster Hunter game to really, truly be like an international success uh, was Monster Hunter World, which was the open world entry in the series. And it's like Capcom's best selling game now. And Monster Hunter Rise just came out for Switch. And I feel like I saw a lot more people sort of interested and posting about Monster Hunter Rise than I feel like, I don't know, maybe would have been before Worlds yeah. uh, had come out. And um, so I feel like that, that I don't know, the success of that might have had a sort of impact on the, some of the aesthetic of this uh, particular movie. Um, just sort of channeling a, a mo- version of Monster Hunter that now is known more outside of Japan. Um, but yeah. on the note of like international, just like the international success, it's kind of worth mentioning the like brief kind of controversy that this like movie found itself in. And then it's like obviously being an international co-production uh, and and feeling very indebted to like Chinese blockbusters. I mean, it has that like wild chef cat character. Oh, yeah, the palico. That feels like. Yeah, it feels like straight out of like a, you know, journey to the West or something. And the way the movie ends and the kind of setup for its sequel that will probably not happen also felt like the end to like journey to the West or something. Yeah, it was kind of hoped that it would be a big success in China, but it got pulled very quickly from Chinese theaters after social media backlash over this one specific like kind of racist joke that uh, a character in the movie makes. And that character is coincidentally played by MC Jin, who was the first Asian American rapper to sign to a major label. He was a member of coincidentally DMX's rough riders. Um, he moved to Tai. Uh, sorry. He moved to Hong Kong at the end of the two thousands, became a born again, Christian then eventually moved back to the U S and is like really tight with Andrew Yang. He toured with the Yang on his presidential campaign and he just like recently released a song called like yang for new york which is just like god uh horrible i didn't actually realize that the person making this like joke that uh, uh really upset chinese audiences 
was Chinese American, which makes it more complicated. But like, I don't know, that line was like totally excised immediately from all versions of the movie. And so I did not see that line in the movie when I watched it. Yeah. Um, but it, yeah, it was, you know, pulled from from Chinese theaters. And I think that really hurt the movie a lot. But um, it does feel very like designed to both reach the sort of audience's original game in Japan, but also try to reach beyond that. Yeah. I mean, the series has been around since like 2004. I could talk a little bit about the game if you want. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was made in 2004, and it was always very popular in Japan. Well, not always, but like it gained a lot of popularity with releases on the PSP. Um, and kind of the common, the common knowledge, common like story that like American like games culture kind of tells about Monster Hunter is that it was so popular in Japan mm-hmm. because people would have their PSP on their commute, and also there's more density in urban areas of japan so you could just like ambiently find or not ambiently but like just like stumble into like a casual little monster hunter session with people on your subway or i guess not subway but your rail or like co-workers there's even like mm-hmm. you know there used to be news stories about co-workers like stopping work to play monster hunter with their friends at their cubicle it's funny because i among other people were sort of clowning a little bit on um a certain film critic from IndieWire for comparing Monster Hunter to Pokemon in his review of the movie, just being like, oh, if you're not familiar with Monster Hunter, it's a Japanese role-playing game like Pokemon. That's a worse understanding of Pokemon than people saying that it trained you to fight demons or to like (laughs) to like train demons like that's more accurate to what pokemon is i will say that that social element does kind of like feel like a progenitor almost to like augmented reality of of pokemon go or something just the sort of bringing in the people around you into your gaming experience totally yeah and i mean part of that's just growing up in a less like a less like dense area like you know out in the country or in the suburbs or something like that. The PSP really only showed up when like one, there's the one PSP kid you knew who was like hacking it, playing Earthbound on it, all this shit. My PSP experience was mostly facilitated through my orthodontist who was rich as fuck apparently, unsurprisingly given his trade and had PSPs for every chair, but they only had like pinball games and most of the time they didn't work sad i mean the psp is great like i have a playstation vita and i basically use it just to play psp games it's a great Mm -hmm. console but anyway so i mean people credit that with why the series never really took off in america i mean there was like one on the Wii called monster hunter try that i've heard great stuff about i want to play that yeah but monster hunter world was kind of the big breakthrough success in part because it it targeted console game or yeah console game players instead of mobile game players or handheld game players because you know, when the game came out in like 2015 or 16, I want to say, um, in kind of the middle of that PS4 and Xbox One console generation. I don't know, like the only handheld platform was like the 3DS and that was being phased mm-hmm. out. So it wasn't, I mean, there was a Monster Hunter. There are a couple on the 3DS, but even that is just not, it just ain't cutting it, you know, like James mm-hmm. Brown said. It feels like a part of a real effort to sort of try to introduce the Monster Hunter franchise more and more to American audiences. And we've mentioned that this movie's co-stars tony jaw who i feel like has been perpetually over the last decade been like trying to kind of have his american breakthrough obviously like he he came up in the earlier 2000s helped really popularize muay thai with movies like ung bak and the protector and showed up in in fast and furious six yeah i believe he was in the star wars the disney star wars spinoff rogue one 
oh wow i totally forgot he was yeah. in that um, he was, yeah and he was in that along with the star of it man oh yeah donnie yen right yeah yeah, yeah i forgot yeah. his name but they were both in that movie he was in triple x3 the return of xander cage he's made some direct-to-video movies with scott adkins um triple threat uh and then one with Dolph lundgren called skin trade and like the pro- the thing about most of these movies is that they either sort of just use him as like a boss you know like like that's his role basically in fast and furious 6 is it's just a boss fight fight like ronda rousey and furious 7 um you know it's just these sort of like cameos from real well-regarded like physical fighters yeah but also people who like i mean like a video game boss they may have like an antagonistic bark that they do at like the main character (laughs) but But there's no real internality yeah, into them exactly. or anything like that. Or even much, they just aren't really given much beyond their physical expression, which is still pretty limited to just being like intimidating and then they're killed. Yeah. And like in Triple X3, like he's doing all these kind of like Michael Jackson like moves and noises and stuff. And they just seem to struggle with the fact that like he has a limited knowledge of English and don't really know what to do with him for that fact. And Monster Hunter, you know, it does sort of like facilitate his kind of character and performance through a white person, but it does give him a much more full character, both just by like letting him be like a totally physical performer who doesn't really like isn't really characterized through speech, but also like through his relationship to objects. And that's, I think, one of the real ways that this movie sort of has a sense of kind of gaminess is the fact that all of its characters pretty much don't have any kind of backstory or characterization beyond their relationship with objects, both very literal sort of game elements like armor upgrades and weapons going from machine guns to the like double swords, which Mila picked out herself because she liked playing them like in the actual game. But then, you know, like Mila also has this like wedding ring and Tony has these like figurines that like remind him of his family. So we sort of are given hints at who they are through their relationship to objects and so this movie just like lets him be a performer in a way that i haven't really seen with any other english language movies and gives him a full performance and character and and really just shows you know he has that sort of like jackie chan kind of like ability to just like be very like charming and goofy a a little bit but also to be really physically formidable and um he just feels very like well matched with mila i think and it's both and it's assessment so i think both of their kind of physical performances i mean hers is more language driven but is still sort of like doing a lot of the same things that he's doing um but it also brings to mind conan again because there's a lot of this movie that's like defined by silence or like characters not really speaking very much Mm -hmm. just speaking with action yeah just performatives yeah but also so earlier we talked about kind of like the way people point out like imperialism in this movie and all this stuff and say like, well, this movie, you know, uses the military and all this stuff. And, you know, that just seems kind of imperialist as if like games about you being a mercenary, taking contracts to go and kill like animals out in nature. Mm-hmm. I mean, people have people have linked this to colonialism for the game franchise for for some time. I mean, there's the depth of criticism on Monster Hunter as I've looked into it to prepare for this episode is like not really that deep. It mainly starts whenever World became really popular um, in the West, at least English language criticism, I should say. Mm-hmm. But 
I think that like the way that the movie pairs, eventually I'll get back to Tony Jaw with this. The way the movie like starts off with the military unit, well actually it starts off in the fantasy world, goes to the military and you have kind of this comparison of like the swashbuckling pirate crew with the military convoy who's like joking around with each other mm-hmm. and who are just like dealing with the, you know, most of them hate being in the military. They think it's pointless. And as we see in the movie, it, it is a bit pointless. <laughs> I just want to, real quick, like, that's, it's just such, like, video game, like, dialogue, you know, just, like, soldiers just, like, complaining. Like, I've been playing Republic Commando uh, <laughs> because it just, like, oh. came out for PS4, and it's yeah. the same kind of, like, just offhanded, just, like, oh, it's, like, another day, like. Yeah, speaking of clones right there, yeah, it's a Star damn, Wars clone true. FPS. Uh, just like Halo was, a lot of those first-person shooters are also directly about cloning and stuff mm-hmm. um, and, and social rep- reproduction. I mean, I don't think the movie is exactly lost on the fact that, like, you know, the comparison that I'm making, I don't think is the first time this comparison's come up in the mind of, like, mm-hmm. some of the people who are making the movie. Because it feels incredibly direct, but also the fact that it was stemmed, like I said earlier, from this Metal Gear Solid and Monster Hunter collaboration... I feel like it's kind of interesting because these are both pretty like hardcore gaming franchises. But I mean, mm-hmm. Metal Gear Solid is something that is just like so inspired by that aestheticized, cool spy post Cold War action. No, I mean, and you know, going to be directed by Jordan Vogue Roberts of Kong Skull Island. Also about clones. Damn, true. It's really true. Yeah. And also, you know, the series goes on and talks about memes. I'm not going to say, I mean, people call the series political, but that is just Hideo Kojima, like really heavy handedly, like Baskin Robbins, just scooping out political ideology and just throwing it in, just scooping. Dude, I just had a realization, you know, I was like, why the fuck did they get that dude to do Metal Gear Solid? That doesn't make any sense. It's literally because he did a Vietnam pastiche movie. That's why. It's because he did a King Kong Apocalypse Now movie. They're like, oh, he can probably do this. Also, fun fact, apparently, like, the filming of Kong Skull Island in Vietnam was, like, so well-received and it's geographically, like, so accurate or something that, like, the state of Vietnam made him, like, an official tourism liaison. Jordan Vogue Roberts with his long beard who used to reply to haters on Twitter. Yeah, now he doesn't get service in the secret Kojima Productions studio that's like in some little bubble underground. God, the bunker. The tunnels. If you see the pictures that they post from that thing, it looks like a bunker, but also looks like the white room at the end of 2001. And I don't think that's unintentional. It's like, I I feel like Kojima is probably like, oh, this is my like my version of Cormac McCarthy's compound in West Texas. I didn't think about this till now, but I think he got like even the idea for the baby from 2001. That makes a lot. Of, yeah, mm. that fucking baby star child vibes. It's all or maybe he's just a big fan of Journey's Frontiers, you know, maybe. Anyway, so I, I mean, I'm bringing all this up to say that the movie is full circle. I don't think it's um. I mean, it's very interested, I think, in like the colonialist like roots of the games themselves i think and so it draws that comparison between war movies and kind of like colonial fantasies like this and also like all the characters are so tied to objects like you said but i feel like that's maybe a reference of some of the same structuralism in those games that are so class-based and yeah weapons-based and and especially monster hunter is one where you 
have to go and really learn about like all the animals that you're going after and you have to kind of like see well are you know are they a ground-based animal do they live between the ground and the sky i don't know learn what type of weapon you need to do so also i mean the enemies are very based on like these physical body oriented qualities of you Mm -hmm. know like elemental damage and stuff like that but i mean the movie also like references like you said a lot of older genre movies that also weighed in a lot of these colonial themes because like it even brings in like the trope of like the white insurgent or the white visitor befriending someone who lives in that world that they're going into and giving them chocolate and like letting them try chocolate that's like that's a that's a real trope yeah i mean it even has some like very i don't know like robinson crusoe kind of like treasure island robert lewis stevenson sort of vibes just like very classic adventure i mean i don't know i'm sure he's a fan of like captain blood and like that kind of stuff too mm-hmm. uh paul w sanderson i mean and and it has that feel to it and also i feel like the tr- like the ron perlman character too is like kind of a trope like the sort of the bridge between these worlds like this white guy who's like gone native or like or learned english i guess but i don't know he's still like the one english-speaking like white character in this monster hunter world who is the translator between mila and and everyone else yeah i believe paul ws anderson also credited avatar as a point of inspiration for this it makes a lot of sense is a an update on that for sure but anyway, I mean, that's kind of the relation to Tony Jaw I was wow. trying to make is that it kind of fits within this like grander pattern. One thing I wanted to mention about like the open world movie thing that we we're talking about and how it kind of treats the landscape in the same way as an open world game. It also goes to like a lot of the same sources for like the open world kind of colonial fantasy that because mm-hmm. I mean, that's where open world games come from is the idea that like the world is mine and I get to stomp all over it. Yeah, like, you see the mountain you can go to it. You don't have to worry about trespassing or anything like that kind of thing, you know? Yeah. But there's so many shots in the movie that are literally Mia Jovovich climbs up like a hill or something like that and looks over the edge and you see the shot of the hill or the, the other side, kind of the view that she's seeing and then her docked at the bottom looking out over it. And it looks exactly like the painting wander above the sea of fog which is just like a visual touchstone for like every open world game like legend of zelda breath of the wild exists because that painting (laughs) thinking about open worlds a little bit more is a really sort of fascinating and fertile concept i feel like just because um fertile is an interesting word choice (laughs) so i guess that there are sort of multiple levels that this uh, on which this movie is trying to like create in a so-called open world which is all as we know always kind of an illusion before we started recording when you sort of uncovered this connection to metal gear solid we were just talking a little bit about those games and like the like the mercenary union basically that kind of like oh, gets built in. military without borders yeah exactly military without that's borders. his solution to like political violence in the third game the main character is like well i'm making a country without a nation <laughs> or not a country yeah basically a, a mercenary colony yeah and it's like that's sort of an an open world concept you know it's like negative version of like abolishing borders where that's just like what's what it's replaced with what any kind of like national border is replaced with is just like surveillance well yeah the physical border is replaced by the infrared border that palmer lucky oculus ceo is now working on with peter thiel damn 
the real world connection. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm thinking about how, you know, this movie being such an international co-production and being financed by all of these big multinational entities, it's part of a sort of effort to create a like open world cinematic marketplace where a media property that is popular in Japan and that is trying to build its popularity elsewhere is sort of adapted into another medium, which is produced by the US, Germany, Japan, China, and is trying to reach audiences equally for different reasons in all of those areas, has a Thai action star, has a you know Chinese American rapper who has worked in Cantopop and has a fan base in Hong Kong and, and yeah. China. Um, and also TI, you know, too, like yeah. you know. <laughs> so it's just kind of trying to hit these multiple kind of like branding levels, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Um, and taking the open world like to the commercial extent almost. Yeah. And you mentioned in our notes, like kind of jokingly, like, is this the first open world movie? But I think that this type of kind of like not open world, but real life globalized kind of marketing approach Mm -hmm. of bringing in all these different strands. I feel like that comes from plenty of kind of like group movies like, uh, you know, Cannonball Run. Yeah. And all types of movies like that. But to me, I mean, at most similarly and most recently echoes like the fast and furious movies definitely yeah this is a really interesting kind of point to connect to because you know i was talking about how he sort of connects to like an earlier generation of blockbuster cinema and spectacle cinema and you just watched the original conan the barbarian i just watched conan the destroyer directed by richard fleischer Um, who had a really, really fascinating long career of these kind of like tentpole movies. I mean, he also did some like really gritty noir and low budget movies, but he, you know, did like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and like Tora, 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 which was a big influence on Star Wars and the dogfight sequences in Star Wars. Um, Soylent Green and like the Vikings with Kirk Douglas and just like every kind of genre of like different spectacle movies up to like Conan the Destroyer and Red Sonja. And then his last movie uh, produced by Dino De Laurentiis, which was like a promotional tie-in with Glad plastic bags and like uh the like it had a promotional contest where like if you guessed like the location of like a hidden bag of money in the movie then you would would win a million dollars and the movie was not very successful and like everybody guessed pretty much the same location which was like the nose of the statue of liberty so they actually just had a random drawing for the winner because everybody submitted the same answer um but i don't know just thinking about that kind of like connection of like all of these decades of of various types of of very commercial spectacle um which a lot of times like you know you mentioned something like cannonball run or like you know there are all kinds of like you know there are movies like yeah, you know, like, yeah, stuff we've talked about in the past, you know, like that kind yeah. of disaster movies, but also like stuff like It's a Mad Mad World where you have like big ensemble casts. Um, but then, you know, leading up to a point where you do start to have like international stars cast in those kind of movies. Yeah, like Jackie Chan was in Cannonball Run 2 and he was driving like a Knight Rider style car. I mean, it's a very like Orientalist, very token character of him having all this like technology and stuff. Yeah, which then I think kind of leads up to the 90s and like, you know, Choi Hark you know making like double team with dennis rodman and it's just again this sort of like multi-point like marketing 
cinema this like supply chain cinema almost Ooh, what a term yeah that's some shit yeah, i'm that. sure like someone has used that in some way at some point but yeah i gotta lock that away yeah one other thing i guess to note about the movie or I guess not the movie actually, but the game, is that the first game came out in 2004, which is three years after 9-11, which, you know, talking about 9-11, that's real classic, right? On this podcast. Love it. Smoking on that jet fuel. Yeah, but the next year in 2005, Shadow of the Colossus came out, and these are both two Japanese games where the central kind of tension or the central kind of relationship is the player who's just a regular human surrounded by really big architecture and having to fight really big enemies. Mm Mm-hmm. And I mean, the connection between Shadow of the Colossus and 9-11 is kind of jokingly made in like the movie Rain Over Me. Or very sincerely. Is it? I haven't seen it. Well, I feel like people always note it as a joke. Yeah, no, I mean, because it's so ridiculous, but it is like very sincere about like Adam Sandler's character trying to use this game or like losing himself in this game because he can't get over the trauma of losing his family in 9-11. Mm-hmm. And so that's like part of the way that he, I mean, as with all video games, you avoid your life. And then during the game, you kind of think about it abstractly. Yeah. But so both of these are Japanese games that came out three or four years after 9-11. And it kind of mirrors that like human scale versus, you know, massive scale type of like relationship. Uh, But they both kind of like relate to nature very differently because both of them are about also humans versus nature Mm -hmm. and interested in ecology obviously monster hunter i've already kind of mentioned is very kind of colonialist you you know have your little base and then you go out into the world and you kill you extract and it uses a very mercenary kind of remove and ambivalence about it all and it's just very matter of fact just doing my job but also i mean there's kind of like a natural coexistence like the cat chef is in the games and stuff like that not just something made up for the movie though i think i mean i don't know if the games have him doing a whole like salt bay routine (laughs) (laughs) well it's also interesting, you know, you mentioned the sort of like the very like utility of it and the sort of classification system. And in the movie, Mila literally teaches Tony like like she's like Hunter and like I'm a ranger. And it's just mm-hmm. very much like defined by these sort of jobs and, and like categories. Very class based. I mean, that's a general like genre term for like Japanese role playing games, mm-hmm. something being class based. But what is it but a synonym for class consciousness? damn fucking deep which i feel like the movie does connect like a little bit with just like the situation of the soldiers who hate being in the military and are either doing it because they were tricked into it or for money yeah definitely i mean it it just sort of had me thinking about like i don't know i've i've recently watched and reviewed um the like jane fonda and donald sutherland documentary fta which is about like this tour they did um of like underground coffee shops and and venues outside american military installations in the pacific um because there was a a really a vocal and organized like anti-war resistance among soldiers most of whom had been drafted obviously and um, a real sort of organized effort to like raise consciousness not just about like the vietnam war itself but connecting out to like all kinds of issues you know talking about like talking about racism in the military as a way to connect to racism back in the united states connecting to like the anti-imperialist struggles of the people who were occupied by the american military and who had previously been occupied by the japanese empire you know like in places like okinawa um, and also then using like issues of like sexual discrimination and gender discrimination in the military to connect to like feminist struggles again in the u.s and around the world and 
I don't know. So that movie kind of like had me thinking about the sort of like the role of like the infantry um, and and just sort of like the sort of lowest class of, of soldiers. And, and obviously, you know, it's it's sort of a different situation now with like when there's not a draft and people literally are not like imprisoned and in, enslaved sometimes almost in military service, you know, because there are a lot of people who like chose that over like going to prison or um, but it is, you know, you have so many people who are kind of tricked into doing it, you know. I just like think about like I've seen TikToks of like, you know, a soldier walking around the barracks, like holding his phone and, and being like, if you could say one thing to your recruiter now, like, what would you say? And, and just all the dudes are just like flipping the camera off or just saying, fuck you. And it's just like this quick cut of just like the same, just like really pissed off sentiment. And I just kind of think I see that. And I'm like, damn, if that could be really just like organized and harnessed, it would be a really, I think, powerful political force. And instead it's used to usher in friendliness with Chinese tech companies. Damn. I'm joking, but that's the real surveillance state. Mm-hmm. Giving your data to the CCP. Yeah, totally different. CCP on them. Damn. God, I hate that. But I don't know. It's just sort of this movie. I felt like, you know, so often in like American or English language action, I feel like it's about special ops or like secret agents or like kind of deep state operatives or Mm -hmm. officers and you know this is i don't know it's like a un thing so maybe it is like i don't something more complicated but these are just kind of just like foot soldiers and it felt like very much like working class soldiers kind of in a way that feels very in touch with just sort of pwsa's career um of sort of like on the ground floor you know he's just kind of like in it and like very unpretentious about his filmmaking um but also just sort of like his movies are populated just with like kind of straight up blue collar types sometimes in a in a refreshing way for action movies because yeah and i think it pairs up pretty well with the with with the game series as well kind of similar with resident evil i think there's a lot of like I mean, where there may not be like narrative, like like uh, literal adaptation or something mm-hmm. like that. I feel like there's a lot of good like formal like adaptation of like what the games do or how the games work and stuff, which is always really fun to watch. To make another like auteurist kind of Hollywood connection, it is very uh, Howard Hawks kind of tendency. You know, just having the like group of professionals, just these people who are very perf- defined by their jobs. I mean, I think that's most of the Resident Evil movies. You have just these random people who are just like security guards or like, you know, they've just kind of come together and like you just sort of know that like they had this job or that job sort of in the past world. And yeah. um, they sort of have these certain skills because of this experience. And um, that's sort of the same, I think, with with Monster Hunter. And I mean, that's obviously a sort of the feature of games, but it just gives it a sort of like i don't know a sort of truth (laughs) despite how simulated and unreal so much of it feels yeah i mean a lot of it does feel kind of blank but the action that fills it ooh, yeah absolutely amazing stuff i think we should stop talking about this movie now because we've been going for so long i'm good with closing up the box yeah not hunting anymore we've gathered enough ideas yeah we've gathered we've taken them to the marketplace and now hands are off all bets are off so that's it yeah we you've just upgraded your your uh your film theory skill tree we just gave you some points use them xp so uh where can people find you seth i'm on twitter at asap sunscreen you can listen to my podcast (laughs) 
<laughs> by looking up Hotbox the Cinema on your favorite podcatcher, Hotbox the Cinema on Twitter as well. The email is hotboxthecinema at gmail. Where can people find you, Nathan? Uh, I'm at Trimore Girls on Twitter, and also we've got the uh, Hotbox Instagram, Hotbox the Cinema, and Hotbox the Cinema dot big cartel.com if you want to buy a little bit of merch which i think i'm going to be refitting reworking some of the merch packages a little bit watch out for a soft reopen a soft brand redirection soft relaunch soft yeah. reboot and also cool little note our last episode the mind virus episode is like one of our most popular ever we got it around like 245 clicks on that sucker which makes it our fourth most listened to yeah episode or fourth most played whatever engaged with i don't know i know that some of that was because of some haters yeah. trying to look for ammunition to dunk on me and unfortunately all they found were nuggets of wisdom and they were ashamed because they're they're <laughs> dumb and were geniuses but it's still it's still pretty cool. And, and I mean, there, our last couple episodes have been doing pretty well, too. You know, like the first person episode is like our fifth most, most listened to Demon Lover. Also, people seem to have enjoyed. So I don't know. It's just cool. It's just cool to get some some engagement. So if you're out there, you know, drop us a message, shoot us a line and we will engage back. Yeah. And I mean, the way we got it planned out, I mean, we kind of just like aren't really operating around any kind of like schedule or like curriculum in terms of like we're covering this subject or whatever. It just kind of it happens, you know. Yeah. Um, but sometimes they're more research. Sometimes they're more like of the moment dedicated to a movie kind of like this one was or we have guests on sometimes. So, I mean, if you ever want to send us an email or something like that and kind of say what you like and don't like, we're always open to hear that, too. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I would love to have, you know, a, a mailbox. This should be played at high volume, preferably in a residential area. the mailbox read out some some feedback some letters and if you ever have anything like specifically that you would like to hear us talk about i mean we'll take it under consideration mm -hmm. you know it doesn't mean we'll we can promise that we'll do it but we're we're open to ideas and i think you know sort of feeding off what y'all put out there all right well until next time yeah until then until 420 keep on token Sun went down and then you fill him a jug and he pass it around. Mighty, mighty please him, that was corn squeezing. Well, the team and team and 